Welcome back to the program. Let's face it, oftentimes even the most interesting of subjects are presented to us in more or less predictable or at least accepted ways. It's rare that a work of ideas comes to us in a truly imaginative form. But that's exactly what David Kishik has done with his new book, The Manhattan Project. As cities are becoming ever more important, as most of America moves into urban spaces, understanding cities and their relationships to people is ever more important. That's why it's my pleasure to welcome David Kishik here today. David is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the Institute for Liberal Arts and Interdisciplinary Studies at Emerson College. His new book is The Manhattan Project, A Theory of a City. It's just out from Stanford University Press, and it is my pleasure to welcome David Kishik. David, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be in your show. It's great, great to have you here. I want to begin by talking a little bit about the construct of the Manhattan Project. As, as I said in sure. the introduction, it's, it's a very unique concept around which you've built this. Talk a little bit about that, first of all. I can begin by talking about the two strange elements that compose this book. First and foremost, it is a philosophy of the city or a theory of a city, a very specific place and it's a very specific time. It's something that philosophers don't usually do. Uh, second of all, it's also a kind of a literary montage of all these different disciplines, concepts, ideas, places, etc., that compose 20th century New York. Uh, and thirdly, well, I said two, but there are three, <laughs> I actually tell this story from the perspective of um, a person that actually lived, Walter Benjamin, a literary critic and philosopher, uh, one of the greatest of the 20th century, uh, who died in 1940 on his way to New York, escaping the Nazis. Uh, but I just continue his life until 1987. Um, and as he was walking until his death for 13 years on this uh, book called The Arcades Project, uh, which was about Paris as the capital of the 19th century, I imagine him writing this sequel called The Manhattan Project, which is about New York, the capital of the 20th century. Jump off from that, the idea of New York as the capital of the 20th century, really as the urban center of the 20th century. Talk a little bit about, about that evolution. I mean, it's more than just it being the place. Um, it's also for me that this city represents some kind of an image of modernity, of what modern life really means. Um, for me, modern life is urban life. Uh, I don't think about ourselves as living in a postmodern age. We're actually at the center of this urban revolution because only in 2008, um, half of the population is urban and half of it is rural, and the numbers are continue to rise uh, in the urban uh, scale. Uh, all over the world, not just in Europe or America, but right now in Asia and soon also in Africa. So as far as I'm concerned, analyzing New York uh, in the 20th century is helping us to understand that modern condition, which, as I said, is, is the urban condition. And it's interesting to think about what changes or what might change going forward as urban space becomes even more dense as a result of growing populations moving to urban areas. I mean, it takes it to, to a whole other level, arguably. Uh, for sure. Um, I mean, it's hard for me to predict. I mean, it's the same way that Benjamin wrote his book about Paris uh, in the 20th century, looking back at the 19th 
uh, I can only now be able to look back at the 20th century and talk about what was um, as a quasi-historian. Um, what will happen in, the, in our century, I think that we're only now beginning to figure it out. I mean, of course, I mean, I don't know what will a writer 100 years from now will call his book uh, about urban spaces. Maybe he will call it the Brooklyn Project. Maybe he will call it the Shanghai Project or the Mumbai Project. Uh, I truly don't know, and it's hard for me to speculate. But the megacities are only getting larger and larger, though for me it's not just a question of numbers, that's for sure. Right. And talk about it in terms of the contrasts, and and you point them out in this sequel that, that you create, that Benjamin uh, mm-hmm. creates, the differences between Paris as the capital, as an urban center and capital of the 19th century, and New York in the 20th century. Uh, yeah, that was a big part of my project to try to translate or transcribe concepts and ideas and persons and, um, and, and lines of arguments from his book on Paris to my book on New York. Uh, his protagonist, uh, the main character of his book, uh, was the Flonel, these uh, people that used to walk aimlessly all day long in the streets of Paris. Um, in my book, the Flonel transforms into the homeless person, who is a kind of uh, exhausted Flonel, perhaps. Um, and, and, and for me, the homeless person represents 20th century New York as, as basically the only person that could be called the protagonist of that city. What were some of the other fundamental differences, some of the other ch- contrasts that, that you came mm-hmm. to see? Uh, for Benjamin, for instance, his uh, main philosopher or thinker that he used uh, as a prism through which you could look at uh, 19th century Paris would, was Marx, um, Karl Marx. I am also very much influenced by, by his way of thinking about capitalism, etc., but actually, the main character, the main theoretical character in my book is Hannah Arendt and her political philosophy rather than uh, Marx's economic philosophy. Also, I'm very much influenced by the work of Jane Jacobs, not oh. just in The Death and Life of Great American Cities, but she has actually a, a trilogy of books about the economy of cities um, that, were, that end up being central to my argument in the book. In understanding this, how important is it to go back even further and really take a, a deeper historical perspective in terms of the evolution of cities, even from Greek times? Um, I mean, as a philosopher, Athens will always be sort of like the city. Um, However, one of the interesting things, something that you get when you read Arendt reading uh, the Greeks living in New York in the 20th century, is that uh, the, the, the Athenians thought about their city as a polis. And what is a polis? It's a city-state. It's both city and state. Um, however, as the empire, the, the Greek empires evolved, uh, those two concepts kind of like um, separated from each other. You will have a city, but then you will have a much grander state, uh, even intercontinental state. I think that today, in the 20 and 21st century, we no longer conflate these two concepts. There are still some city-states, but really we separate these two notions. And for me, one of the main arguments in the book is to try to contrast the city and the states. 
uh, something that even in in American history is is, is extremely important to this, this this split or this contradiction between the countryside and 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 the cityscape. Uh, between the state sovereignty and 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 the urban space that I do think to be sort of antagonistic forces, even though they very much depend on each other in looking at them as more antagonistic forces and more contrasting today at a time in which globalization and communication and everything else would argue exactly the opposite that the membrane between the city and the state becomes ever more porous given modern communications and globalization? Um, the interesting thing, actually, uh, Saskia Sassen will write about this, is that the more those means of uh, advanced communication will develop, uh, the more powerful cities will become. Uh, it's more easy to um, move commodities, information, people from place to place, which only makes cities more important. Space becomes place, and cities, those nodes or centers of communication, become even more powerful in the last 20, uh, 20-some odd uh, years rather than less so. Um, I do think about the city today as, as some kind of a confluence of political and economic forces. I call it at a certain point an ecopolis. Uh, it's both economic and political entity. Um, however, with all this globalization, etc., um, cities, and perhaps with this global movement, you do have some kind of a waning of sovereign uh, forces, and as a consequence, I think that some kind of a political force will have to rise, and that force is the force of the city, which is why I talk repeatedly about the urban revolution. In spite of all this data and all this information being able to move more freely, what happens in the city, and in a way it's counterintuitive, there's even a greater need for people to, to literally connect and interact with each other in a kind of urban campus sort of way. Right. A place becomes way more important than it used to. Um, first of all, uh, if I live in a big city, my means of communication with the other great city are becoming much easier. Second of all, I can produce whatever I want to produce in faraway land and draw the material as well as the capital back into the urban center, and that's actually what happens. So it is counterintuitive, but that's just the reality that we're facing in the last 20 years. Does it create a greater homogenization, and does it make cities less unique and more similar between them, more similarities between them? Mm, interesting question. I mean, first of all, I think that the forces of, of, of creating a, a space of, of sameness is what modernity was trying to do in the 20th century. I think the suburb represents it quite well. Uh, for me, cities are spaces of difference, has always been. And, however, you are right to the extent that you could move from one urban space to another and feel sort of like at home, uh, but I won't mix them up. I mean, I do think that there are still unique elements uh, which is why I insist on the, or the very particularity of Manhattan, of New York, in the 20th century. Um, the notion that you can just like uh, replace one place with another is, is something that I have uh, some, some sort of a trouble with, you know. It's, it's more than just a, a, an airport that is completely uh, the same. Each one of them is the same, and you just move from one to another without any sense of where you are and what you are. Place is very much 
matters. You cannot reproduce a city street uh, anywhere else without it looking fake. Why is that? Because, I mean, the, 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 the reality of a place like Manhattan um, is irreplaceable from that perspective. Of course, as things gentrify, as things change over time, one could make the argument that it does start to look more like someplace else. I mean, certainly in, in many parts of Manhattan or many parts of any city, for that matter, there are these unique characteristics for sure. But further building, further gentrification really creates that kind of similarity. For sure. And and this is the other part of the legacy of Jane Jacobs. She helped us create these small little nice neighborhoods with mom and pop shop and appreciate their importance. Uh, however, that created this, as you say, the process of gentrification, which makes the the right to the city, as people will call it, uh, much more difficult to attain for more and more parts of the population in the same way that in the 50s all the middle class white bourgeois will move into the suburbs a very similar move will happen in the 20 the end of the 20 and the beginning of the 21st century uh, back into the city uh, and that is a huge problem which is why in a way even there is some kind of a redemptive element to the Manhattan project I kind of encapsulate it in the 20th century when the city was kind of like a wasteland and anybody could move there and pay no rent whatsoever uh, yes I mean perhaps the most important problem right now is that the rent is too damn high whether it is commercial or um, uh, residential. Um, what can be done about this? Does the city still have any redemptive forces given that fact? Uh, it's, it's, it's actually a question that I cannot answer. Right. Sorry. It's, it's interesting to see what happens to the suburbs in, in this kind of environment as people leave them, as more and more people move back to the city. What's going to happen to these areas outside the cities? And Jane Jacobs, in her very last book uh, before she died uh, in 2008, I believe, uh, actually talks about an attempt to actually revitalize the suburbs that in themselves become, become a kind of a wasteland. Uh, I'm kind of skeptical about this. I'm not exactly sure that it is possible um, because I think that these from the very beginning were kind of... Um, modernistic experiments that that only now are proven to be uh, the problem that we all know that they are uh, what can be done again it's not an answer it's not a question sure. that they know how to answer right it's so interesting to see what's taking place for example here in the in the San Francisco Bay Area with regards to technology because you had all these technology companies that grew up in the essentially the suburbs of Silicon Valley. They had these huge, vast tracts of land and these huge campuses that they've created. And yet now the young people that are working there all want to live in the city. They all want to live in San Francisco. And in a kind of reverse situation of what we've seen through the 20th century, we have people working essentially in the suburbs and living in the city. It's, it's an interesting reversal on what, what happened in the 20th century. Yes, and as a consequence, San Francisco becomes, for many people, unbearable. Um, I mean, still, what is happening in Silicon Valley is, 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 is fascinating because it is exactly this cross-pollination and uh, 
um, the ways by which businesses will break into new businesses uh, is exactly the kind of urban economy that that Jacobs uh, is talking about, hoping uh, that cities will uh, continue to be like that. Um, maybe if San Francisco as a city could become a more entrepreneurial space rather than just a residential uh, consumption space, um, it could redeem itself. But as long as it is simply the place that you go to live in a nice neighborhood and, and you know, eat your $7 toast, uh, <laughs> then, then there is a bit, a bit of a problem over there for sure. It's cities are not merely spaces of consumption. They need to be spaces where new work begins. Uh, if it doesn't, then they're doomed to fail sooner or later. Right. It's interesting that, that so much of the way we talk about this, particularly as it relates to Manhattan and, and as we talk about Silicon Valley and San Francisco, that there's an economic underpinning. To what degree did Benjamin write about the economic underpinning when he wrote about Paris in the 19th century? He was very much disillusioned. I mean, his book is an attempt to wake us up from the dream of the 19th century, the European dream of his parents, uh, this bourgeois dream. His actual parents were, you know, just good bourgeois German Jews. Um, and he was trying to escape it by becoming this intellectual. And much of his work on Paris was an attempt to get us out of this, uh, what he will call the phantasmagoria a spectacle uh, of 19th century capitalist life, uh, the fetish, uh, and all these Marxist ways of thinking about uh, capitalism. Uh, however, when I'm doing this translation into 20th century New York, I become much more uh, skeptical of, of, of this criticism. Um, so from that perspective, for sure. But, I mean, again, it is Jane Jacobs' work on uh, the economy of cities that, that really informed the way I think about Manhattan. Right. Is it possible to bring this same kind of analysis to the more modern cities, places like, I mean, if we use the U.S., places like Los Angeles, for example, or, or maybe Houston to some extent, but Los Angeles specifically, mm -hmm. and the way that's been imitated in cities throughout the world, do the same rules, do the same ideas apply, or is that something that requires its, its a whole different set of, of rules and ideas? Uh, I, I would say the latter. It requires a whole different set of rules of ide and ideas. There are great works done on uh, 20th century Los Angeles life. Uh, the, this is basically the postmodern city, and it operates according to completely different set of rules as far as I'm concerned. It, it's interesting, though, because we refer to it as a city, we think about it as a city in so many ways, but, but as you say, the rules are different. The underpinnings are completely different. Yes, I mean, it is, of course, a car city. It is essentially a, a, a glorified suburb. And, and as a consequence, um, I mean, Manhattan will remain the last place, uh, one of the last places in America where you can live your whole life without ever owning a car. And that is something that, of course, is the opposite of the way by which uh, Los Angeles was built and still operates. What about cities that have come along and... I guess you'd refer to them as kind of artificial cities, this attempt to create urban landscape in essentially what isn't, to, to eliminate cars and to create walkable spaces and to create, you know, what, what essentially become artificial cities. Uh, yeah, cities cannot be artificially constructed. Right. Uh, the, the, there has to be some kind of an organic, unexpected, 
expected uh, development of cities. Um, Jacobs will talk about about the thing theory. We think that if we will just add one or this or another thing into a city, may it be a convention center or a nice walkway or this or the other, then the city could somehow become a good, great city. Uh, cities cannot ever be um, uh, just artificially designed. And, and, and I mean, the great thing about a place like Manhattan is that it was designed in the sense of the grid that was laid out in uh, the early 19th century. But since then, the chaotic way by which the city will develop will, will, will keep on to that designed artificial grid, but that grid turns into basically New York's second nature. Um, whether other cities can follow that and, and, and become vital, really organically developed cities is just something that, that, that time can tell. Of course, a lot of it is a matter of geography and the degree to which a city is allowed or not allowed because of its geography to spread out. Certainly, Los Angeles can, Manhattan can't. Paris, to a certain extent, was, was confined because of certain geographic factors, as is in San Francisco. So the geography also plays a significant role, it seems. Uh, for sure. However, um, why would uh, New York be New York rather than, for instance, Elizabeth, New Jersey? That is a great place with a great uh, harbor uh, that right now is actually more powerful than the New York Harbor that is mm. pretty much non-existent. Uh, geographically, that could and that would be on the continent. Um, why Manhattan and not Elizabeth, New Jersey? Uh, geography helps, but it cannot really predict what kind of a city will be, how strong, basically. Um, that will be the short answer, yeah. The other part of the geography is the confinement. I mean, Manhattan as an island makes a difference. San Francisco, because of the bay and because of the limitations, is, you know, is, is different in that regard. Yes, and Paris, for instance, was limited uh, for right. centuries by a wall right. that eventually was uh, put down, and instead they put uh, the, 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 the road that will go around Paris, uh, the highway, essentially, and, and that will become the thing that separates the inner uh, Paris from the suburbs. Um, for sure, you're right. Uh, however, New York in 19, uh, 1898 uh, was consolidated with the five other boroughs to create the mega city of today. So from that perspective, it is way more than just Manhattan. And, and even though it, my book is called The Manhattan Project, it is about all these uh, five boroughs of the city. Um, and that could essentially extend... Um, forever and i mean it is i mean people will talk about the whole section from boston to washington as one big um, mega city uh, and it is basically and and there are many that have talked about those mega cities as the the quote unquote cities of the future that they really just stretch from from end to end they do but still uh, it is the very heart of of uh, what would be essentially a 19th century city whether it is boston or new york to some extent washington to some extent baltimore and of course philadelphia that 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 will be you know the proper urban centers the rest w is is essentially the rest these are just suburban sprawls that connect the dots but the dots are what matters really David Kishik, his book is The Manhattan Project, A Theory of a City, just out from Stanford University Press. David, I thank you so much for spending some time with us today.
Thank you, Jeff. It was a pleasure. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.